Section 1 of The Matador of the Five Towns and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Read by Andy Minter. The Matador of the Five Towns and Other Stories by Arnold Bennett. Section 1 the Matador of the Five Towns, Part One. Mrs. Brindley looked across the lunch-table at her husband with glinting, eager eyes, which showed there was something unusual in the brain behind them. Bob, she said, factitiously calm, you don't know what I've just remembered. Well, said he, it's only Grandma's birthday today. My friend Robert Brindley, the architect, struck the table with a violent fist, making his little boys blink, and then he said quietly, yeah, "'The deuce!' I gathered that Grandmamma's birthday had been forgotten, and that it was not a festival that could be neglected with impunity. Both Mr. and Mrs. Brindley had evidently a humorous appreciation of crises, contretemps, and those collisions of circumstances which are usually called junctures, for short, I could have imagined either of them saying to the other, "'Here's a funny thing, the house is on fire,' and then yielding to laughter as they ran for buckets. Mrs. Brindley in particular laughed now. She gazed at the tablecloth, and laughed almost silently to herself, though it appeared that their joint forgetfulness might result in temporary estrangement from a venerable ancestor, who was also, birthdays being duly observed, a continual fount of rich presents in specie. Robert Brindley drew a timetable from his breast pocket with the rapid gesture of habit. All men of business in the five towns seemed to carry that timetable in their breast pockets. Then he examined his watch carefully. "'You'll have time to dress up your progeny and catch the two-five. It makes the connection at night for acts. The two little boys, aged perhaps four and six, who had been ladling the messy contents of specially deep plates onto their bibs, dropped their spoons and began to babble about Grey Granny, and one of them insisted several times that he must wear his new gaiters. "'Yes,' said Mrs. Brindley to her husband, after reflection, "'and the fine old crowd there'll be in the train with this football match. "'Can't be helped. Now you kids, hook it upstairs to nurse.' "'And what about you?' asked Mrs. Brindley. "'You must tell the old lady that I'm kept by business.' "'I told her that last year, and you know what happened.' "'Well,' said Brindley, "'here's Lorin just come. "'You don't expect me to leave him, do you? "'Or have you had the beautiful idea of taking him over to Axe "'to pass a pleasant Saturday afternoon with your esteemed grandmother?' "'No,' said Mrs. Brindley, "'hardly that. "'Well, then?' "'The boys, having first revolved on their axes, "'slid down from their high chairs as though from horses. "'Look here,' I said, "'you mustn't mind me. "'I shall be all right.' <laughs> shouted Brindley. I seem to see you turned loose alone in this amusing town on a winter afternoon. <laughs> I seem to see you. I could stop in and read, I said, eyeing the multitudinous books on every wall of the dining-room. The house was dadoed throughout with books. Rot, said Brindley. This was only my third visit to his home and to the five towns, but he and I had already become curiously intimate. My first two visits had been occasioned by official pilgrimages as a British Museum expert in ceramics. 
The third was for a purely friendly weekend, and had no pretext. The fact is, I was drawn to the astonishing district and its astonishing inhabitants. The five towns to me was like the east to those who have smelt the east. It called. "'I'll tell you what we could do,' said Mrs. Brindley. "'We could put him on to Dr. Stirling.' "'So we could,' Brindley agreed. "'Wife, this is one of your bright, intelligent days. "'We'll put you on to the doctor, Loring. "'I'll impress on him that he must keep you constantly amused till I get back, "'which I fear won't be early. "'This is what we call manners, you know, "'to invite a fellow-creature to travel a hundred and fifty miles to spend two days here, "'and then to turn him out before he's been in the house an hour.' "'It's us, that is. "'But the truth of the matter is, this birthday business might be a bit serious. "'Might easily cost me fifty quid and no end of diplomacy. "'If you were a married man, you'd know that ten plagues of Egypt "'are simply nothing in comparison with your wife's relations. "'And she's over eighty, the old lady. "'I'll give you ten plagues of Egypt,' Mrs. Brindley menaced her spouse, "'as she wafted the boys from the room. "'Mr. Loring, do take some more of that cheese if you fancy it.' She vanished. Within ten minutes, Brindley was conducting me to the doctor's, whose house was on the way to the station. In its spacious porch, he explained the circumstances in six words, depositing me like a parcel. The doctor, who had once, by mysterious medicaments, saved my frail organism from the consequence of one of Brindley's Falstaffian nights, hospitably protested his readiness to sacrifice patients to my pleasure. "'Yeah, it'll be a chance for McElroy,' said he. "'Who's McElroy?' I asked. "'McElroy's another Scotchman,' growled Brindley. "'Extraordinary how they stick together. "'When he wanted an assistant, "'dispose he looked about for someone in the district, "'someone who understood us and loved us "'and could take a hand at bridge. "'Not he. "'Off he goes to Cooper or somewhere "'and comes back with another stage Scotsman named McElroy. "'Now listen here, Doc.' "'A charge to keep you have, and mind you keep it, "'or I'll never pay your confounded bill. "'We'll knock on your window to-night as we come back. "'In the meantime you can show Loring your etchings, and pray for me.' "'And to me, here's a latch-key.' "'With no further ceremony he hurried away to join his wife and children at Bleakridge Station. "'In such singular manner was I transferred, forcibly, from host to host.' Two. The doctor and I resembled each other in this, that there was no offensive affability about either of us. Though abounding in good nature, we could not become intimate by a sudden act of volition. Our conversation was difficult, unnatural, and by gusts falsely familiar. He displayed to me his bachelor house, his etchings, a few specimens of modern rouge flambé ware made at Nipe, his whisky, his celebrated prize-winning fox terrier Titus, the largest collection of books in the five towns, and photographs of Marischal College, Aberdeen. Then we fell flat, socially prone. Sitting in his study, with Titus between us on the hearthrug, we knew no more what to say or do. I regretted that Brindley's wife's grandmother should have been born on the 15th of February. Brindley was a vivacious talker. He could be trusted to talk. I, too, am a good talker, with another good talker. With a bad talker, I am just a little worse than he is. The doctor said abruptly, after a nerve-trying silence, that he had forgotten a most important call at Hanbridge, and would I care to go with him in the car. 
I was, and still am convinced, that he was simply inventing. He wanted to break the sinister spell by getting out of the house, and he had not the face to suggest a sortie into the streets of the five towns as a promenade of pleasure. So we went forth, splashing warily through the rich mud and the dank mist of Trafalgar Road, past all those strange little Indian red houses and ragged empty spaces and poster hoardings and rounded kilns and high smoking chimneys, uphill, downhill and uphill again, encountering and overtaking many electric trams that dipped and rose like ships at sea into Crown Square, the centre of Hanbridge, the metropolis of the five towns. And while the doctor paid his mysterious call, I stared around me at the large shops and the banks and the gilded hotels. Down the radiating street vistas I could make out the facades of halls, theatres, chapels. Trams rumbled continually in and out of the square. They seemed to enter casually, to hesitate a few moments as if at a loss, and then to decide with a nonchalant clang of bells that they might as well go off somewhere else in search of something more interesting. They were rather like human beings who are condemned to live for ever in a place of which they are sick beyond the expressiveness of words. And indeed, the influence of Crown Square, with its large effects of terracotta, plate glass and gold letters, all under a heavy skyscape of drab smoke, was depressing. A few very seedy men, sharply contrasting with the fine delicacy of costly things behind plate glass, stood doggedly here and there in the mud, immobilised by the gloomy enchantment of the square. Two of them turned to look at Stirling's motor-car and me. They gazed fixedly for a long time, and then one said, only his lips moving, "'As Tommy stood thee that quarter beer as he promised thee?' No reply, no response of any sort for a further long period. Then the other said, with grim resignation, "'Aye.' The conversation ceased, having made a little oasis in the dismal desert of their silent scrutiny of the car. Except for an occasional stamp of the foot, they never moved. They just doggedly and indifferently stood, blown upon by the nipping draughts of the square, and as it might be sinking deeper and deeper into its dejection.' As for me, instead of desolating, the harsh disconsolateness of the scene seemed to uplift me. I savoured it with joy, as one savours the melancholy of a tragic work of art. "'Yeah, we make you go down to the signal officers and worry Buchanan a bit,' said the doctor cheerfully when he came back to the car. This was the second of his inspirations. Buchanan, of whom I had heard, was another Scotchman, an editor of the sole daily organ of the five towns, an evening newspaper cried all day in the streets and read by the entire population. Its green sheet appeared to be a permanent waving feature of the main thoroughfares. The offices lay round a corner close by, and as we drew up in front of them, a crowd of tattered urchins interrupted their diversions in the sodden road to celebrate our glorious arrival by unanimously yelling at the top of their strident and hoarse voices, "'Hooray! Hooray! Bloody Rye!' Abashed, I followed my doctor into the shelter of the building, a new edifice, capacious and considerable, but horribly faced with terracotta, and quite unimposing, lacking in the spectacular effect, like nearly everything in the five towns, carelessly and scornfully ugly, the mean swinging double doors returned to the assault when you pushed them, and hit you viciously. 
In a dark counted room marked Inquiries, there was nobody. "'Hi there!' called the doctor. A head appeared at a door. "'Mr. Buchanan upstairs!' "'Yes!' snapped the head, and disappeared. Up a dark staircase we went, and at the summit were half flung back again by another self-acting door. In the room to which we next came, an old man and a youngish one were bent over a large littered table, scribbling on and arranging pieces of grey tissue paper and telegrams. Behind the old man stood a boy. Neither of them looked up. "'Mr. Buchanan in his—' the doctor began to question. "'Ah, oh, there you are!' The editor was standing in hat and muffler at the window, gazing out. His age was about that of the doctor, forty or so, and like the doctor he was rather stout and clean-shaven. Their Scotch accents mingled in greeting, the doctor's being the more marked. Buchanan shook my hand with a certain courtliness, indicating that he was well accustomed to receive strangers. As an expert in small talk, however, he shone no brighter than his visitors, and the three of us stood there by the window, awkwardly in the heat disorder of the room, while the other two men scratched and fidgeted with bits of paper at the soiled table. Suddenly and savagely the old man turned on the boy. "'What the hell are you waiting there for?' "'I thought there was something else, sir. Slaying your hook.' Buchanan winked at Stirling and me as the boy slouched off, and the old man blandly resumed his writing. "'Perhaps you'd like to look over the place,' Buchanan suggested politely to me. "'I'll come with you. It's all I'm fit for to-day.' "'Flew.' He glanced at Stirling and yawned. "'Ye ought to be in bed,' said Stirling. "'Yes, I know. I've known it for twelve years. I shall go to bed as soon as I get a bit of time to myself. "'Well, will you come? The half-time results are beginning to come in.' A telephone bell rang impatiently. "'You might just see what that is, boss,' said the old man, without looking up. Buchanan went to the telephone and replied into it. "'Yes. Oh, Myatt. Yes, he's playing. Of course I'm sure. Good-bye.' He turned to the old man. "'Yes, another of them wanting to know if Myatt's playing. Birmingham this time.' "'Ah!' exclaimed the old man, still writing. "'It's because of the betting,' Buchanan glanced at me. The odds are on Knipe now, three to two. "'If Myatt's playing, Knipe have got me to thank for it,' said the doctor, surprisingly. "'You? Me? He fetched me to his wife this morning. She's nearing her confinement. False alarm. I guaranteed him at least another twelve hours.' "'Oh, so that's it, is it?' Buchanan murmured. Both the sub-editors raised their heads. "'That's it,' said the doctor. "'Some people were saying he'd quarrelled with his trainer again and was shamming,' said Buchanan. "'But I didn't believe that. There's no hanky-panky about Joss Myatt, anyhow.' I learnt, in answer to my questions, that a great and terrible football match was at that moment in progress at Knype, a couple of miles away, between the Knype Club and the Manchester Rovers. It was conveyed to me that the importance of this match was almost national.' and that the entire district was practically holding its breath till the result should be known. The half-time result was one goal each. "'If Knight lose,' said Buchanan, explanatorily, "'they'll find themselves pushed out of the first league at the end of the season. That's a cert. One of the oldest clubs in England. 
semi-finalist for the English Cup in seventy-eight. Seventy-nine, corrected the elder sub-editor. I gathered that the crisis was grave. And Myatt's the captain, I suppose, said I. No, but he's the finest full-back in the league. I then had a vision of Myatt as a great man. By an effort of the imagination, I perceived that the equivalent of the fate of nations depended upon him. I recollected now large yellow posters on the hoardings we had passed, with the names of Knipe and of Manchester Rovers in letters a foot high, and the legend, League Match at Knipe, over all. It seemed to me that the heroic name of Jos Myatt, if truly he were the finest full-back in the league, if truly his presence or absence affected the betting as far off as Birmingham, ought also to have been on the posters, together with possibly his portrait. I saw Jos Myatt as a matador, with a long ribbon of scarlet necktie down his breast and embroidered trousers. "'Why,' said Buchanan, "'if Knight drop into the second division, they'll never pay another dividend. It'll be all up with first-class football in the five towns.' The interests involved seemed to grow more complicated, and here I had been in the district nearly four hours without having guessed that the district was quivering in the tense excitement of gigantic issues. And here was this Scotch doctor, at whose word the great Myatt would have declined to play, never saying a syllable about the affair, until a chance remark from Buchanan loosed his tongue. But all doctors are strangely secretive, Secretiveness is one of their chief private pleasures. "'Come and see the pigeons, eh?' said Buchanan. "'Pigeons?' I repeated. "'We give the results of over a hundred matches in our football edition,' said Buchanan, and added, "'Not counting rugby.' As we left the room, two boys dodged round us into it, bearing telegrams. In a moment we were, in the most astonishing manner, on a leaden roof of the signal offices. High factory chimneys rose over the horizon of slates on every side, blowing thick smoke into the general murk of the afternoon sky, and crossing the western crimson with long pennons of black. And out of the murk there came from afar a blue and white pigeon, which circled largely several times over the offices of the signal. At length it descended, and I could hear the whir of its strong wings. The wings ceased to beat, and the pigeon slanted downwards in a curve, its head lower than its wide tail. Then the little head gradually rose, and the tail fell. The curve had changed. The pace slackened. The pigeon was calculating with all its brain. Eyes, wings, tail, and feet were being coordinated to the resolution of an intricate mechanical problem. The pinkish claws seemed to grope, and after an instant of hesitation, the thing was done. The problem solved. The pigeon with delicious gracefulness, had established equilibrium on the ridge of a pigeon-coat, and folded its wings, and was peering about with strange motions of its extremely movable head. Presently it flew down to the leads, waddled to and fro with the ungainly gestures of a fat woman of sixty, and disappeared into the coat. At the same moment the boy, who had been dismissed from the sub-editor's room, ran forward, and entered the coat by a wire-screened door. Eh, "'Handy things, pigeons,' said the doctor, as we approached to examine the coat. Fifty or sixty pigeons were cooing and strutting in it. There was a protest of wings as the boy seized the last arriving messenger. "'Give it here,' Buchanan ordered. 
The boy handed over a thin tube of paper, which he had unfastened from the bird's leg. Buchanan unrolled it and showed it to me. It read, Midland Federation, Axe United, Macclesfield Town. Match abandoned after half-hour's play owing to fog. 3.45. 3.45, said Buchanan, looking at his watch. He's done the ten miles in half an hour, roughly. Not bad. First time we tried pigeons from as far off as Axe. Here, boy. And he restored the paper to the boy, who gave it to another boy, who departed with it. "'Man,' said the doctor, eyeing Buchanan, "'you'd no business out here. "'You're not precisely a pigeon.' Down we went, one after another, by the ladder, and now we fell into the composing-room, where Buchanan said he felt warmer. An immense, dirty, whitewashed apartment, crowded with linotypes and other machines, in front of which sat men in white aprons, tapping, tapping, gazing at documents pinned at the level of their eyes, and tapping, tapping.' a kind of cavernous retreat in which monstrous iron growths rose out of the floor and were met halfway by electric flowers that had their roots in the ceiling. In this jungle there was scarcely room for us to walk. Buchanan explained the linotypes to me. I watched, as though romantically dreaming, the flashing descent of letter after letter, a rain of letters into the belly of the machine. Then, going round to the back... I watched the same letters, rising again in a close, slow procession, and sorting themselves by themselves, at the top, in readiness to answer again to the tapping, tapping of a man in a once white apron. And while I was watching all that, I could, somehow, by a faculty which we have, at the same time see pigeons far overhead, arriving and arriving out of the murk from beyond the verge of chimneys. "'Ingenious, isn't it?' said Stirling but I imagine he had not the faculty by which to see the pigeons. A reverend, bearded, spectacled man, with his shirt-sleeves rolled up and an apron stretched over his hemispherical paunch, strolled slowly along an alley, glancing at a galley-proof with an ingenuous air, just as if he had never seen a galley-proof before. Eh, "'It's a stick more than a column already,' he said confidentially, offering the long paper, and then, gravely, looking at Buchanan, with head bent forward, not through his spectacles, but over them. The editor negligently accepted the proof, and I read a series of titles. Knight versus Manchester Rovers, Record Gate, 15,000 Spectators, Two Goals in Twelve Minutes, Myatt in Form, Special Report. Buchanan gave the slip back without a word. "'There you are!' said he to me, as another compositor near us attached a piece of tissue paper to his machine. It was the very paper that I had seen come out of the sky, but its contents had been enlarged and amended by the sub-editorial pen. The man began tapping, tapping, and the letters began to flash downwards on their way to tell a quarter of a million people that Axe versus Macclesfield had been stopped by fog. "'I suppose that night match is over by now,' I said. "'Oh, no,' said Buchanan. "'The second half's scarcely begun.' "'Like to go?' Stirling asked. "'Well,' I said, feeling adventurous, "'it's a notion, isn't it?' "'You can run Mr. Loring down there in five or six minutes,' said Buchanan, "'and he's probably never seen anything like it before. "'You might call here as you come home and see the paper on the machines.' Three. 
We went on to the grandstand, which was packed with men whose eyes were fixed, with an unconscious but intense effort, on a common object. Among the men were a few women, in furs and wraps, equally absorbed. Nobody took any notice of us as we insinuated our way up a rickety flight of wooden stairs, but when, by misadventure, we grazed a human being, the elbow of that being shoved itself automatically and fiercely outwards to repel. I had an impression of hats, caps, and woolly overcoats stretched in long parallel lines, and of grimy raw planks, everywhere presenting possibly dangerous splinters, save where use had worn them into smooth shininess. Then gradually I became aware of the vast field, which was more brown than green. Around the field was a wide border of infinitesimal hats and pale faces rising in tears, and beyond this border fences, hoardings, chimneys, furnaces, gasometers, telegraph poles, houses, and dead trees. And here and there, perched in strange, perilous places, even high up towards the sombre sky, were more human beings clinging. On the field itself, at one end of it, were a scattered handful of doll-like figures, motionless. Some had white bodies, others red, and three were in black. All were so small and so far off that they seemed mere unimportant casual incidents in whatever recondite affair it was that was proceeding. Then a whistle shrieked, and all these figures began simultaneously to move, and then I saw a ball in the air. An obscure, uneasy murmuring rose from the immense multitude, like an invisible but audible vapour. Next instant the vapour had condensed into a sudden shout. Now I saw the ball rolling solitary in the middle of the field, and a single red doll rushing towards it. At one end was a confused group of red and white, and at the other two white dolls, rather lonely in the expanse. The single red doll overtook the ball and scudded along with it at his twinkling toes. A great voice behind me bellowed with an incredible volume of sound, "'Now, Joss!' And another voice further away bellowed, "'Now, Joss!' And still more distantly, the grim warning shot forth from the crowd. Now, Joss! Now, Joss! The nearer of the white dolls, as the red one approached, sprang forward. I could see a leg, and the ball was flying back in a magnificent curve into the skies. It passed out of my sight, and then I heard a bump on the slates of the roof of the grandstand, and it fell among the crowd in the standing closure. But almost before the flight of the ball had commenced, a terrific roar of relief had rolled formidably round the field, and out of that roar, like rockets out of thick smoke, burst acutely ecstatic cries of adoration. "'Bravo, Joss! Good old Joss!' The leg had evidently been Joss's leg. The nearer of these two white dolls must be Joss, darling of fifteen thousand frenzied people." Stirling punched a neighbour in the side to attract his attention. "'What's the score?' he demanded of the neighbour, who scowled and then grinned. Two-one, again us,' the other growled. "'It'll take all our buggers they all their time to draw. They're playing a man short.' "'Accident?' "'No. Referee ordered him off for rough play.' Several spectators began to explain, passionately, furiously, that the referee's action was utterly bereft of common sense and justice and I gathered that a less gentlemanly crowd would undoubtedly have lynched the referee. The explanations died down, and everybody except me resumed his fierce watch on the field. 
I was recalled from the exercise of a vague curiosity upon the set, anxious faces around me by a crashing, whooping cheer, which in volume and sincerity of joy surpassed all noises in my experience. This massive cheer reverberated round the field like the echoes of a battleship's broadside in a fjord, but it was human, and therefore more terrible than guns. I instinctively thought, if such are the symptoms of pleasure, what must be the symptoms of pain or disappointment? Simultaneously, with the expulsion of the unique noise, the expression of the faces changed. Eyes sparkled, teeth became prominent in enormous uncontrolled smiles. Ferocious satisfaction had to find vent in ferocious gestures, wreaked upon the dead wood or upon the living tissues of fellow creatures. The gentle, mannerly sound of hand-clapping was a kind of light froth on the surface of the billowy sea of heartfelt applause. The host of the fifteen thousand might just have had their lives saved, or their children snatched from destruction, and their wives from dishonour. They might have been preserved from bankruptcy, starvation, prison, torture. They might have been rewarding with their impassioned worship a band of national heroes. But it was not so. All that had happened was that the ball had rolled into the net of the Manchester Rovers' goal. Nipe had drawn level. The reputation of the five towns before the jury of expert opinion that could distinguish between first-class football and second-class was maintained intact. I could hear specialists around me, proving that, though Nipe had yet five league matches to play, its situation was safe. They pointed excitedly to a huge hoarding at one end of the ground, on which appeared the names of other clubs, with changing figures. These clubs included the clubs which Knipe would have to meet before the end of the season, and the figures indicated their fortunes on various grounds similar to this ground all over the country. If a goal was scored in Newcastle or in Southampton, the very Peru of first-class football, it was registered on that board, and its possible effect on the destinies of Knipe was instantly assessed. The calculations made were dizzying. Then a little flock of pigeons flew up and separated, under the illusion that they were free agents and masters of the air, but really wafted away to fixed destinations on the stupendous atmospheric waves of still-continued cheering. After a minute or two the ball was restarted, and the greater noise had diminished to the sensitive, uneasy murmur which responded like a delicate instrument to the fluctuations of the game. Each feat and manoeuvre of Knipe drew generous applause in proportion to its intention or its success, and each slight of the Manchester Rovers, successful or not, provoked a holy disgust. The attitude of the host had passed beyond morality into religion. Then, again, while my attention had lapsed from the field, a devilish, a barbaric and a deafening yell broke from those fifteen thousand passionate hearts, it thrilled me. It genuinely frightened me. I involuntarily made the motion of swallowing. After the thunderous crash of anger from the host came the thin sound of a whistle. The game stopped. I heard the same word repeated again and again in divers tones of exasperated fury. Foul! 
I felt that I was hemmed in by potential homicides, whose arms were lifted in the desire of murder, and whose features were changed from the likeness of man into the corporeal form of some pure and terrible instinct. And I saw a long doll rise from the ground and approach a lesser doll with threatening hands. Foul! Foul! Go it, Joss! Knock his neck out! Jossie, trip thee up! There was a prolonged gesticulatory altercation between the three black dolls in leather leggings and several of the white and red dolls. At last, one of the mannequins in leggings shrugged his shoulders, made a definite gesture to the other two, and walked away towards the edge of the field nearest the stand. It was the unprincipled referee. He had disallowed the foul. In the protracted duel between the offending Manchester forward and the great, honest Joss Myatt, he had given another point to the enemy. As soon as the host realised the infamy, it yelled once more in heightened fury. It seemed to surge in masses against the thick iron railings that alone stood between the referee and death. The discreet referee was approaching the grandstand as the least unsafe place. In a second, a handful of executioners had somehow got onto the grass, and in the next second, several policemen were in front of them, not striking nor striving to intimidate, but heavily pushing them into the bounds. "'Yet yeah, back there!' cried a few abrupt, commanding voices from the stand. The referee stood with his hands in his pockets and his whistle in his mouth. "'I think that in that moment of acutest suspense,' the whole of his earthly career must have flashed before him in a phantasmagoria. And then the crisis was past. The inherent gentlemanliness of the outraged host had triumphed, and the referee was spared. "'Serve him right if they'd man-handled him,' said the spectator. "'Aye,' said another gloomily, "'aye, and the football association had defined us maybe hundred quid, and disqualify the ground for the rest of the season.' Damn the Football Association. Aye, but you canna. Now, lads, play up night. Now, lads, give em what help. Different voices heartily encouraged the home team as the ball was thrown into play. The fouling Manchester forward immediately resumed possession of the ball. Experience could not teach him. He parted with the ball and got it again twice. The devil was in him and in the ball. The devil was driving him towards Myatt. They met. And then came a sound quite new, a cracking sound, somewhat like the snapping of a bough, but sharper, more decisive. "'By Jove!' exclaimed Sterling. "'That's his bone!' And instantly he was off down the staircase, and I after him. But he was not the first doctor on the field. Nothing had been unforeseen in the wonderful organisation of this enterprise. A pigeon sped away— and an official doctor and an official stretcher appeared, miraculously, simultaneously. It was tremendous. It inspired awe in me. "'I asked for it,' I heard a man say, as I hesitated on the shore of the ocean of mud. Then I knew that it was Manchester and not Knight that had suffered. The confusion and hubbub were in a high degree disturbing and puzzling, but one emotion emerged clear. Pleasure. I felt it myself. I was aware of joy that the two sides were now levelled to ten men apiece. I was mystically identified with the five towns, absorbed into their life. 
I could discern on every face the conviction that a divine providence was in this affair, that God could not be mocked. I, too, had this conviction. I could discern also on every face the fear lest the referee might give a foul against the hero Myatt, or even order him off the field, though, of course, the fracture was a simple accident. I, too, had this fear. It was soon dispelled by the news, which swept across the entire enclosure like a sweet smell, that the referee had adopted the theory of a simple accident. I saw vaguely policemen, a stretcher, streaming crowds, and my ears heard a monstrous universal babbling. And then the figure of Stirling detached itself from the moving disorder and came to me. "'Well, Myatt's cough was harder than other chaps, that's all,' he said. "'Which is Myatt?' I asked, for the red and the white dolls had all vanished at close quarters and were replaced by unrecognisably gigantic human animals, still clad, however, in dolls' vests and dolls' knickerbockers. Stirling warningly jerked his head to indicate a man not ten feet away from me. This was Myatt, the hero of the host and the darling of populations. I gazed up at him. His mouth and his left knee were red with blood, and he was piebald with thick patches of mud from his tousled crown to his enormous boot, his blue eyes had a heavy, stupid, honest glance, and of the three qualities stupidity predominated. He seemed to be all feet, knees, hands and elbows. His head was very small, the sole remainder of the doll in him. A little man approached him, conscious, somewhat too obviously conscious, of his right to approach. Myatt nodded. "'You unsettled him, seemingly, Joss,' said the little man. "'Well,' said Myatt, with slow bitterness, "'hadn't they been blooming well begging and praying for it all afternoon? "'Hadn't they now?' The little man nodded. Then he said in a lower tone, "'How's Mrs. like?' "'There's all together yet,' said Myatt, "'or I'd none a played.' "'I bet what he half a dollar as he didn't a lad,' said the little man. Myatt seemed angry. "'Well, bet me half a quid as he didn't a lad?' he demanded, bending down and scowling, and sticking out his muddy chin. "'Aye,' said the little man, not blenching. "'Evens?' "'Evens.' "'I'll take thee, Charlie,' said Myatt, resuming his calm. The whistle sounded, and several orders were given to clear the field. Eight minutes had been lost over a broken leg, but Stirling said that the referee would surely deduct them from the official time so that, after all, the game would not be shortened. "'I'll be up yon to-morrow morning,' said the little man. Myatt nodded and departed. Charlie, the little man, turned on his heel and proudly rejoined the crowd. He had been seen of all in converse with supreme greatness. Stirling and I also retired, and though Jos Myatt had not even done his doctor the honour of seeing him, Neither of us, I think, was quite without a consciousness of glory. I cannot imagine why. The rest of the game was flat and tame. Nothing occurred. The match ended in a draw. End of part one of The Matador of the Five Towns